Section 12 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morell. Section 12 is there a redeeming feature? Public works and the price thereof. What does the native receive in return for all this taxation? I know of absolutely no way in which he is benefited. Some point to the telegraph. In what way does the telegraph benefit the native? Those who live near the line have to keep the road clear for nothing, and in tropical Africa that is not an easy task. Others point to the scores of steamers running on the upper Congo. In what way do they benefit the native? Here and there, along the river, natives are forced to supply large quantities of firewood for an inadequate remuneration. Others, again, point to well-built state stations. In what way do they benefit the native? They were largely built and are now largely maintained by forced labor. Then others point to the railway, it is a splendid achievement of engineering skill, and pays large dividends to shareholders. But in what way does it benefit the thousands of natives on the Upper Congo? J. H. Weeks, for twenty-five years a missionary in the Upper Congo, in a letter to the author dated Monsembe, December twenty-fourth, 1903. I come to the third claim. The Congo administration has undertaken the construction of public works and buildings. Elegant stations have been erected along the banks of the upper river. That is quite true. No one has ever denied it. Some of the public edifices at Boma and Metadi on the lower river are quite as substantial as those which are to be met with in other administrative centers of the west coast of Africa. But who has paid for their erection? the Congo native. Whose labor is it which has reared them from the ground? The labor of the Congo native. Whom do they benefit now that they are there? The Congo native? The Congo native who is entitled to nothing? The Congo native who owns neither his land nor the fruits of the soil, which he alone can gather, nor his labor? If the Congo native does not benefit from the existence of these fine buildings which his labor has constructed and paid for, if their existence merely facilitates the plunder of his country and the exploitation of his person by the occupants of them, in what sense can their construction be claimed as evidence of civilization? To maintain such a thing would be to make use of an argument which no longer passes muster in the world. It is out of date by two thousand years. Go behind those fine stations, those camps of military instruction, those government-run plantations. Go behind them into the forest and the bush. Mingle with the people of the land. Witness their abiding desolation, their daily griefs. Wander among ruined homes and poverty-stricken hamlets, where once flourished prosperity and ease. Look how the grass almost conceals the village paths, once so clear and clean. Weeds overhanging the now crumbling huts, 
sued invading the river frontage once filled with cassava steeping pits that sued where the mosquito and the tsetse love to breed the purveyors respectively of malaria and sleeping sickness whose dread ravages sweep increasingly through the land finding ready victims in a broken-spirited and ill-nourished people broken by long years of grinding tyranny ill-nourished through the workings of a system which demands for its multitude of agents the staple foodstuffs of the country where are the stores of brass rods the numerous livestock which were once the pride and wealth of these primitive communities arbitrarily seized the commission of inquiry is fain to admit as it records the incontestable impoverishment of the villages where are the native industries which once gave pleasure and occupation to these people ironware brassware rude pottery basket-making they have decayed says the report of the commission decayed as everything worth preservation has decayed and withered beneath the breath of leopoldian civilization it is hard to tell how these people live see these men in whom the very manhood seems stamped out dragging themselves back from the bush at the day's end after a weary search through partly submerged forest knee-deep waist-deep in fetid swamp for the accursed juice of the rubber vine that vine which they must find and tap in all seasons in all weathers whether the sap is rising or falling always ever day after day the year round until death in some form by violence exhaustion exposure or disease or mere weariness and sorrow closes the term of an everlasting and to them mysterious visitation see them at night in the forest far from home wife and children their interminable search not yet over huddled together shivering under a few palm leaves with a scrap of fire in their midst the nights are cold in the equatorial forest the rain invades their scanty shelter and the night wind chills their naked bodies racked with rheumatism and fevers their minds a prey to the superstitious fears in the impenetrable gloom made by the giant trees and matted creepers through which the sun never pierces where malignant spirits are abroad exposed unarmed and helpless to the attack of some roving leopard what thoughts are theirs in the distant village wives and children live at the mercy of the capriciousness cruelty and lust of the armed ruffians set there by the white man men fierce all-powerful speaking another tongue tribal enemies perchance or maybe the worst malefactors in the community specially selected for that very reason as the most fitting instruments of oppression men whose lightest word is law who have but to lift a finger they and their bodyguard of retainers and death or torture rewards protest against the violation of the sanctuaries of sex against the rape of the newly married wife against bestialities foul and nameless exotics introduced by the white man's civilization and copied by his servants in the general purposeful satanic crushing of body soul and spirit in a people 
crushing so complete, so thorough, so continuous, that the capacity of resisting ought, however vile, slowly perishes. Out there in the forest, the broken man through the long and terrifying watches of the night, what is his vista in life? Unending labor at the muzzle of the albini or the cap gun, no pause, no rest. At the utmost, if his fortnightly toll of rubber is sufficient, if leaves and dirt have not mingled in too great proportion with the juice, he may find that he has four or five days a month to spend among his household. If so, he will be lucky, for the vines are ever more difficult to find, the distance to travel from his village greater. Then the rubber must be taken to the white man's fine station, and any number of delays may occur before the rubber worker can leave that station for his home. Four or five days' freedom per month, that is the very maximum he can expect. Five days to look after his own affairs, to be with his family, and always under the shadow of the sentry's rifle. But how often in the year will such good fortune attend him? Shortage on one occasion only will entail the lash, or the chain, and detention. Worse, perhaps, if the white man has a fever, or an enlarged spleen that day. And if he flinches, if, starting from an uneasy sleep there in the forest, when shapes growing out of the darkness proclaim the rising of another day, he wakens to the knowledge that his basket is but half full, and that he must begin his homeward two days march betimes not to miss the roll-call his heart fails him and he turns his face away plunging further into the forest fleeing from his tormentors seeking only one thing blindly to get away from his life and all that it means what will happen well enough he knows has he not seen the process with his own eyes Father, mother, or wife will pay for his backsliding in the hostage-house. And whither shall he flee? The forest encompasses him on every side, the forest with its privations by day, its horrors by night. There he must live, seeking such nourishment as roots and berries will afford. Shall he gain some other village in the hope that it may be a friendly one? But there will the sentry be also, and his doom as a deserter is sure. Go behind those coquettish centers of civilization, where the superior Congolese official drinks, keeps his women, and superintends the shipment of the rubber in the river steamers bound for the pool, the railway, and the ocean steamers. Go behind those outlying posts where the subordinate Congolese official or agent of the government-controlled rubber trusts lives in discomfort and solitude, unless his posse of savage and often cannibalistic auxiliaries can be called company, eating out his soul, losing hold on decency and dignity with the months, harried by perpetual objurgations from the superior person in the fine station for rubber, more rubber, still more rubber. Go behind them, those outstations, and in some covert place near at hand, in a clearing, surrounded by bush, hidden from prying eyes of prowling missionary or chance traveler, you will come across it, a small, low-roofed building, opening into another, where a guard of sentries keep watch and ward. 
This is the hostage house, one of the recognized institutions of the Upper Congo, like the Chicot, the Collier National, otherwise the Chain Gang, and the Matabiche, otherwise the Rubber Bonus. Inside, herded like cattle in a pen, cramped and suffocated, unkempt, groveling in filth and squalor, men, women, and children, chiefly women, half-starved, wholly starved at times. What a story the records of the Congo courts will tell if a substantial number of them are ever dragged to light. For the pestered, unwrought, subordinate white man in the outstation, grown callous and habitually, almost unconsciously cruel, has other things to think about besides his hostages and their victualling. It is as much as he can do, often enough, to feed himself and his soldiers. Taught by his superiors to look upon the people of this regenerated land as brute beasts ere he sets foot among them, the daily task assigned to him has bred a total disregard for human suffering. His mind has become simply non-receptive to such ideas. Rubber is his god. His salary is a mere pittance, but every ton of rubber from his outstation spells Matabiche, and every month that passes means possession coming nearer, and with it release from his surroundings. Censure, if the output falls below the stated figure. Praise and advancement, if he succeeds in maintaining or increasing it, and Matabiche. Rubber is his god. The natives are but means to an end, and them he loathes. Ah, how he grows to loathe them! Are they behindhand in their quota? Then they are robbing him. He who has power of life and death over hundreds or thousands of men, women, and children. Do they tremblingly urge that the vines are exhausted? They are defying him. He knows it, and his fever-haunted brain devises fresh measures for their coercion. He re-reads his instructions, couched in terms of mingled cajolery and warning, and he hardens his heart. Fevers, solitude, discomforts, excesses, the sense of omnipotence grafted upon an indifferent morale, and pernicious ideas inculcated by his employers— the sense of mingled irritation and vanity excited by seeing fear, and the deceit born of fear. In every face, the iron chains of the whole system of which he has become the tool, and in a sense the victim, a system implacable, unalterable, machine-like, whose motive power, controlled and directed with genius from a faraway European city, operates in the equatorial forest with passionless regularity. All this has made of him what he is, what he needs must be, lost to all moral sense, impervious to emotions of pity or compassion. When an official begins to realize the coulisses of the administration, he is stupefied to have fallen so low in the social scale. He cannot ask for his resignation, because the Resuel Administratif does not admit it. If he insists and leaves his station, he can be prosecuted for desertion, and in any case will probably never get out of the country alive, for the routes of communication, 
Victualling stations, etc., are in the hands of the administration, and escape in a native canoe is out of the question. Every native canoe, if its destination be not known, and its movements chronicled in advance from post to post, is at once suspected and liable to be stopped, for the natives are not allowed to move freely about the controlled waterways. The official must therefore finish his term, always obeying the ukases of the governor-general and the district commissioner, without the hope of being able to make known the miseries he is undergoing to the outside world, because in Boma there is a cabinet noir for correspondence. Look inside that hostage-house, staggering back as you enter from the odors which belch forth in poisonous fumes. As your eyes get accustomed to the half-light, they will not rest on those skeleton-like forms, bones held together by black skin, but upon the faces the faces turned upwards in mute appeal for pity, the hollow cheeks, the misery and terror in the eyes, the drawn parched lips emitting inarticulate sounds, a woman, her pendulous pear-shaped breasts hanging like withered parchment against her sides, where every rib seems bursting from its covering, holds in her emaciated arms a small object more pink than black. You stoop and touch it, a newborn babe, twenty-four hours old, assuredly not more. It is dead, but the mother clasps it still. She herself is almost past speech, and soon will join her babe in the great unknown. The horror of it, the unspeakable horror of it. Every station, every post, every factory of the rubber districts of the upper Congo, and many in the food tax districts has its hostage house the number of hostages detained is inscribed upon registers and so far as the outstations are concerned monthly statements on forms printed for the purpose and entitled etat des indigènes soumis à la contrainte par are forwarded in duplicate to headquarters by careful reckoning of the number of stations and outstations, the authorized number of hostages detained per mensum in each, and documentary evidence showing how that number is exceeded. It has been possible to compute that 10,000 human beings pass through the hostage houses of one only of the vast rubber preserves of the upper Congo in a single year. How many remain to die, or leave them only to die, is more difficult to compute. The hostage house is one of the most efficacious assets of the rubber slave trade. Sometimes, with shameless boldness, but with some attempt at outward decency, because the sight is a more public one, the hostage house flaunts itself openly, and is a more pretentious and commodious building. This on the premises of one of the fine and important central stations. And here you can see the prisoners as they march, roped, through the station to the abode which a beneficent administration has caused to be erected for the purpose of stimulating a healthy desire to work among the natives of Central Africa. Slowly the procession winds its way through the station buildings, officers' bungalows, drying sheds for rubber, and so on. At its head, 
walk four sentries, fez on head, and cap-gun or albini slung from their brawny shoulders. Behind them, eighteen women, mothers, those whom motherhood will shortly claim, maids, girls of tender age. Some carry babies, or hold tiny children by the hand, for who shall feed these if left in the village behind? Faltering they come, casting fearful glances to left and right, so terror-stricken that they cannot control the calls of nature. What is their offense? It is an offense by proxy, and a very grave one. The husbands, or the brothers of these women, have failed to trap the weekly antelope required as part of the tax for the white man's table, or their supply of fresh fish is short. Fish is not always abundant in all seasons in the same locality, but the Congo official and his soldiers require fish, and fish they must have. Or the rubber has been of bad quality and insufficient in quantity. It is necessary to take these measures. The husbands will require their wives, and they will trap the antelope. They will find the fish, and they will improve their rubber supply. They are lazy, that is all. If they do not, well, the women will remain in their pleasant abode, fed generously by an administration full of concern for their moral and material welfare. Should delay prove exaggerated and indefensible, it will be the painful duty of the official in charge to send a number of sentries to visit that village. Merely to visit it, of course. They will take their guns? Yes, but for self-protection. These people are wild, very wild. But, rest assured, the guns will not be used save under deliberate provocation. It would be contrary to the regulations. Ah, of course, if the regrettable necessity presented itself, why, then these poor brave sentries would have to defend their lives. The women in the house of detention? Well, no doubt they would be very happy to join the sentries' menage. And who knows? You observed the fifth in the line, she with the brass anklets? No? You English are strange people. She was pleasing, quite pleasing. Distinguished magistrates assured the commissioners of inquiry, says their report, that the detention of women in hostage houses was the most humane form of coercion. Perhaps it is on the Congo, for there are many worse. But the Leopoldian conception of humanity is the humanity of the human tiger thirsting not for blood, but for rubber, which presently, when flung from the hold of an ocean carrier owned by an Englishman, plentifully be starred and be meddled upon the Antwerp quay, shall be converted into gold. Gold to pour into the lap of some favored friend. Gold to be invested in undertakings from China to Peru, gold to rear palaces, pagodas, and monuments to the Emperor of the Congo in Belgian cities, gold to purchase properties under brilliant Mediterranean skies, gold to be hoarded in private treasure chests of which none but the royal owner holds the key, gold to corrupt consciences and manufacture public opinion, to disseminate lying literature throughout the world, even on the seats of continental railway carriages. I have stood on that quay of Antwerp, 
and seen that rubber disgorged from the bowels of the incoming steamer, and to my fancy there has mingled with the musical chimes ringing in the old cathedral tower another sound, the faintest echo of a sigh from the depths of the dark and stifling hold. A sigh breathed in the gloomy equatorial forest by those from whose anguish this wealth was wrung. They knew not their merciful emperor. Yet that echo took form of words in my mind. Imperator, it has seemed to whisper. Imperator, morituri te salutant. We who are about to die salute thee, emperor. Perhaps it was because thoughts flew backwards five hundred years, when to the sound of the same gentle pealing from the old cathedral tower, the ancestors of this same people, which permits to-day its foreign monarch and its financial bodyguard to plagiarize in Africa the infamies committed upon its own citizens by the hirelings of another foreign monarch, fell in mangled heaps in the narrow streets of this very city. If there be a spirit in that tower which never dies, as legend somewhere has it, one can picture the cynical smile that flits across its shadowy features as, contemplating at once the rubber-laden key and the escutcheon of the city with its severed hands, and thinking of the Congo toll, the toll of the handless stump, reflects of the world and its ways, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Yes, go behind those fine stations cemented with the blood of black humanity and see into the lives read into the hearts of the people witness the degradation to which native life has sunk that elderly chief honored in the eyes of his subjects flogged and put to menial tasks made to drink from the white man's latrine in the social system of the African native, the person of the chief is at once the father of the clan, its rallying point, the center to which it looks for guidance, the symbol of all that the clan venerates and regards as holy. The deliberate policy of Bula Matadi has been to break down that influence, in nine cases out of ten, an influence for good, and of course put nothing in its place. Every feature of indigenous life which made for self-respect has been dragged in the mud of grinding tyranny and foul imaginings. Natural instincts of dignity and decency undermined. Indigenous laws for the localization of disease rendered of no avail through the wholesale deportation of women and the moving hither and thither of masses of soldiery public incest as a pastime to the brutal soldiery, things nameless, unprintable. Watch that procession wending its way through the tortuous bush track. Mourners, sons carrying the body of their father, murdered by one of the village sentries in a fit of caprice to the white man's station. The slain man was the chief of that primitive community. Moreover, he was a metal chief. Surely in this case justice could be secured against the assassin. Impatiently the white man hears the story and bids the bearers through an interpreter depart. The rubber was insufficient. It was not the first offense. The chief was responsible. 
It is enough. As the men delay somewhat in taking up their burden, he sets his dog upon them. Watch, too, this son of a murdered father, begging from the murderer permission to untie the body from where it hangs on yonder sapling and give it decent burial. That permission will be granted him eventually, but on it will be founded a further pretext for extortion, and a goodly portion of the remaining family goods will pass into the sentry's hands. Note the gait of that youth as he limps painfully into the village square. He is a fine muscular specimen of humanity. What ails him? As he turns, the cause is clear enough. Down his broad naked back and loins, the blood slowly runs and drips upon the ground. Flies are buzzing round his shoulders. He has been flogged by the white man's orders for shortage. Fifty blows of the rhinoceros hide whip. He fared better than Bokoto of Walla. He explains to his aged mother, as he reaches his hut, he got a hundred strokes and had to be carried away. Go behind those fine stations which figure in the illustrated publications so obligingly scattered broadcast by the press bureau. Get from the lips of survivors the story of the breaking of their village. The narration takes you back to the Middle Ages, to the exploits of the Spanish conquistadors in the West Indies. Go from village to village, from district to district. Leave the rubber zone and visit that fishing center where the old men, the young, are away getting in their fortnightly tax, will tell you, in their primitive simplicity, our young men have no time even to make children. There is nothing before us but death. Get from the lips of the people everywhere the same story of misery and woe. Here, when the weekly tax and foodstuffs have been paid, there is nothing left but leaves to eat. There, the chant of mourning for relatives slain in an affray with the sentries. Pass on through swamp and brushwood. There is another hamlet not far off, and from its direction a confused noise arises, quickly to be distinguished as cries of terror, shouts, execrations. A man dashes past you, running swiftly down the bush path you are now entering. Seeing you, he doubles back and plunges into the forest. You come upon the scene. It is typical and commonplace. A white man in dirty clothes and straggling beard sits upon a stool. Before him stand several soldiers surrounding or holding five women and a man whom the official is angrily interrogating through an interpreter. He is taking the census of the village and apportioning its taxation, that is all. Other soldiers are busy looting the huts, coming out with armfuls of spears and knives, cutting down the plantations, or chasing with loud shouts the villagers who have fled, panic-stricken to the bush. Multiply such scenes, such tales, such tragedies ten thousandfold, and you will only touch the fringe of a people's misery. To men who have lived among them for many weary moons, and whose existence would long ago have been intolerable but for their faith in the Almighty, to a man who for years has been receiving the outpourings of these men's hearts 
in letters and in speech, and whom circumstances have given an insight, granted to few, into the European side of this unparalleled scandal and colossal human tragedy, until their hideousness has burned itself into his soul and scorched it. There is no redeeming feature in the public works constructed by King Leopold on the Congo or in Brussels. On the Congo, every mile of railway, every mile of road, every new station, every fresh stern-wheeler launched upon the waterways means a redoubling of the burden on the people of the land, first because their labor and their labor alone supplies the needed monies and the needed muscles, Secondly, because these material evidences, civilization serve but one purpose, that of facilitating the enslavement of the inhabitants, of tightening the rivets in the fetters of steel, within whose pitiless grip they groan and die. And for the handsome edifices raised by King Leopold in Brussels with the proceeds of this rubber slave trade, I can find no words more fitting than those of Mr. Vandervelde uttered in the Belgian chamber last March to characterize them. I tell him that this money, these profits, these presents are shameful things, because they are the result of the exploitation of a whole people. End of section 12